Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight's event is endocrine-related laminitis, Know Your Foe, and it is brought to you for free by our sponsor, InsulinWise, a supplement from Kentucky Performance Products. Laminitis is a complex and incredibly painful disease of the equine foot. It involves the inflammation and failing of the tissues that attach the coffin bone to the hoof capsule. Without that vital support, the coffin bone can rotate, leading to life-threatening injury. A veterinarian once described laminitis to me by saying that many roads can lead to the same place. That is, laminitis has many causes, from the stress of difficult births in mares to supporting limb failure, like that of Barbaro, the racehorse. Um, but another such road to laminitis is endocrine disease, which is specifically what we're going to be talking about tonight. To answer your questions about endocrine-related laminitis, we're joined tonight by Dr. Teresa Burns, who's a board-certified internal medicine specialist with a research interest in equine endocrine disease at The Ohio State University, as well as Dr. Jane Manfredi of Michigan State University, who's board-certified in veterinary surgery and sports medicine. Dr. Manfredi's PhD focused on endocrine disease in horses, and she's, uh, she performed the research involved um, around InsulinWise, which is our sponsor. Welcome to both of you. Thank you very much, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Michelle. Very happy to be invited. Uh, Dr. Burns, we're going to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in, in endocrine disease and laminitis specifically? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to happy to let you know how 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 I got here. Um, I, I I sort of became interested in endocrine disease of horses during my residency training in internal medicine, and as a part of my residency training, um, we you know I went to grad school, and the laboratory that I ended up working in as part of my grad training was that of Jim Belknap, and and it was a laminitis. Uh, research lab, and as a part of my my grad training, we sort of uh, melded those two those two different areas of work, endocrinology and laminitis, and began to focus a bit more on the laminitis that's associated with endocrine disease. and And since then, um, that's that's sort of been a focus of of our work for the last several years. And so that's um that's that's sort of how I got to be got to be here. Sure. So um, from my end of things, I guess my interest uh, was a early burgeoning interest that actually helped get me into vet med um, totally. So when I was 12, I had a Palomino Welsh pony mare called Chablis, um, who was very much loved by me and my family. Um, she had a very long curly hair coat and a very crusty neck and tended to be a little bit over conditioned. Um, and unfortunately, one spring, um, I went to go and walk her to ride her one day, and she would refuse to move forward. Um, so she was standing in kind of the classic laminitic stance, and um, as a 12-year-old girl, this was really influential because I was worried about what was happening to my pony. Um, and so thus kind of began the long process for me ultimately going to vet school. Um, during my residency, um, I liked to work with the endocrinopathic uh, horses um, more from the surgery standpoint with looking at um, th treatment, therapeutics, podiatry, and things like that. And so after my surgery residency, um, I 
was able to um, join forces with Dr. Ray Gore at Michigan State, uh, who is an expert with endocrinopathic disease and laminitis, um, and began my PhD and pursued my PhD with him, um, looking at different breed factors um, and predispositions to laminitis, as well as really evaluating um, some of the testing and underlying pathophysiology that would predispose horses to laminitis. Uh, so a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be starting with the questions everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question you'd like to ask live or would like a clarification on a response, you can enter it in the chat window in front of you if you're listening via your browser. We'll do our best to get to as many questions of yours as possible. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. Our first question is for Dr. Burns. Um, uh, can you briefly explain to us what laminitis is and how it affects horses and how specifically endocrine disorders are maybe different than other types of causes of laminitis? Sure, sure. So laminitis, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. And it actually, you know, it's a disease that we talk about all the time. It, it almost goes hand in hand with talking about horses. It's so common. Um, but it actually can be somewhat difficult to explain to someone who um, doesn't stare at horse feet all day, um, and even to people who do. So laminitis, it's a pretty unique disease, um, and essentially um, the, the distal limb of the horse is a, is a heavily modified uh, digit, and at the end of it is, is the hoof capsule. And the hoof capsule um, is connected to the bony column within the digit by this heavily modified dermal epidermal structure called the digital lamellae. Um, at the, um, if you were to dissect a foot of a horse, um, at the subgross and histologic level, this lamellar connection between the coffin bone and the hoof wall sort of looks uh, very similar to very um, heavily modified Velcro, if you will, to, to, to use a, an analogy. And it, it looks like that for a reason. It's to, it's to really provide a maximum surface area for the attachment between the hoof capsule and the coffin bone to really ensure that that's a strong and durable connection to provide support for the athleticism and, and weight and power of, a, of an animal of this size um, to provide that kind of support. So essentially, if you were to try and find an analogy between your, uh, the end of your digit, your finger, and the end of the, the horse's digit, if you imagine your fingernail wrapped around the end of your finger, the connection between your fingernail and the nail bed is very analogous to the digital lamellae, which connect the hoof wall to the coffin bone. And so laminitis is the name of the disease that occurs when that connection, the, the the dermis and the epidermis that forms those lamellae separates, and the connection between the hoof capsule and the coffin bone is disrupted or in a lot of cases lost in certain areas around the circumference of the hoof capsule. And what happens in that case is the coffin bone and the digital column um, is destabilized and can essentially uh, rotate or, or uh, move within the hoof capsule and disrupt the alignment of those things. How it affects horses it really disrupts the, the mechanical stability of the digit, um, for one, and two, it's incredibly painful. Um, it now can be managed as a chronic disease, more so than we used to think in the past, and so there's talking about laminitis now is a bit different than it was 20 years ago, um, but still, it's proven itself to be durably a very difficult disease to treat, even though we know more now than we used to be. Um, it's incredibly common 
Um, it's associated with a lot of different diverse disease etiologies in horses, um, and it represents an incredible um, both humane and financial burden to the to the equine industry around the world. And so it's a very important disease of horses. Um, we know a lot more now than we used to, but it, there's a, aspects of it that are still quite mysterious, unfortunately. Yeah. I, like Dr. Manfredi, had that pony that had laminitis as a kid, and that was the end of the road at that time. So it, it's fortunate that we have researchers like you two who are looking for ways to help manage these horses and keep them going longer. Um, Dr. Manfredi, our next question is for you. It's from Chantelle in Quebec, Canada. Uh, she wants to know if you could differentiate between insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. And I would ask, while we're coat, uh, covering those two topics, if you could throw in PPID as well. Um. Sure, that's a great question. So there's a lot of confusion around a lot of the terms we use to talk about causes of endocrinopathic laminitis. Um, and so the two main causes are uh, equine metabolic syndrome and um, PPID, or pars pituitary intermediary dysfunction. Okay, so just let's talk about the metabolic syndrome um, first. And with that, um, I'm going to get into the insulin resistance because insulin resistance is actually kind of one of the characteristics um, associated with it. So metabolic syndrome in horses um, characterized generally by obesity or what we call regional adiposity. So either your horse or animal tends to generally be um, overweight slash obese. Um, and then regional adiposity means um, if you've ever seen, like I was referring to my pony who had that very crusty, tall, fatty neck, um, but they could also have fat in other places such as over their ribs, um, by their shoulder, by their tail head. Um, and also we now know a lot of the times there's extra fat by their organs inside as well. Um, so, uh, in addition to that, we obviously know horses that have metabolic syndrome have a predisposition to laminitis. And then kind of the final two characteristics um, that are associated with the syndrome is this idea of insulin resistance. And then kind of a newer term, which I'll also talk about, is insulin dysregulation. So um, to talk about insulin resistance, let's talk a little bit about insulin. So insulin is a hormone that is normally involved in regulating glucose or sugar levels in the blood and tissues of the body. So when horses eat a meal, whether it's grass or grain or hay, they will um, secrete insulin um, from the pancreas into the bloodstream. And then that insulin tells the tissues of the body to take up this sugar. Okay. So the problem with insulin resistance is when that is not working. So basically you need a lot more insulin to take up the same amount of sugar into the tissues, okay? So um, the new term that we are kind of using more commonly now, um, because diagnosing a tissue level problem is something that's um, more difficult and takes kind of more extensive testing than what we're normally doing um, in the field, is a term called insulin dysregulation. Um, and what that is implying is that, again, there's this disconnect between the level of insulin you need um, with your you know, to with your glucose levels. So, for example, you might have a normal amount of glucose, but your insulin levels are really, really high, um, either just resting at baseline in the morning, and in some of these horses, after a meal, they go sky high um, in response to the meal itself. Again, not something that should normally happen. Um, so, 
when you're talking about metabolic syndrome, again, that encompasses this idea of insulin resistance or dysregulation, typically looking at either a fat horse or one that has localized fat deposits and this predisposition to laminitis. So the second part, which is a, a great question to bring up, Michelle, was, um, so what's PPID then? Um, and so when we're talking about PPID, it's actually a, a different endocrine condition, um, which is basically kind of like a benign tumor, a part of the PARS pituitary. Um, and it, as a result of that, we actually kind of lose some of our dopamine inhibition on that area. Um, and so the end result of this can be the horse that I was talking about that is like that curly, hairy coat that doesn't shed out in the springtime, that has muscle wasting, especially over the top line. Um, they can also often urinate and drink a lot more than you would think. So the stall will be covered with um, wet urine in the morning. Um, and they'll have predisposition to like dental disease because they're generally immunosuppressed. Um, and so these animals um, can also be predisposed to laminitis. And like my poor pony, Charlie, sometimes horses can have both. And that's kind of a double whammy, we think, where they each exaggerate the other and probably make things worse. Um, so hopefully that you know explains a little bit about the two main conditions that we think of when we think of endocrinopathic laminitis and also talk a little bit about how each of those is a little different. Thank you, Dr. Manfredi. And Dr. Burns, our next question is for you. It's from uh, Kaya Lucia in Eugene, Oregon. And she wants to know if you could address how a blood test is read to determine a horse's risk and also the ways that blood tests can vary um, in how they're performed or in results. Dr. Burns? Sure. So this is a, this is a really good question, um, of course, that, that really gets to the heart of how we would go about trying to identify horses that have insulin dysregulation for the purpose, hopefully, of trying to, to manage that and prevent them from experiencing bouts of laminitis in the future. So some of the common blood tests that you'll see performed on horses at risk, and, and Dr. Manfredi, as part of her research, has actually done quite extensive work on, on a couple of these. Um, one of the ones that you'll see first uh, would be a basal insulin concentration, and that simply is um, assessing uh, uh, the insulin concentration in a single blood sample, usually after some sort of dietary preparation of the horse. There's a little bit of conversation happening now about when, what's the best dietary preparation, i.e., should the horse be fasted for some period of time? Um, should the horse have grain withheld? I think most people do agree that concentrate feeds, which tend to be higher in non-structural carbohydrates, those sugars, starches, and fructans that can, that can increase insulin secretion, um, those types of feeds should be withheld for a period of time, usually 10 to 12 hours or overnight. Um, and then the animal offered uh, some low non-structural carbohydrate hay um, overnight and have feed pulled two hours before. That's a pretty common dietary preparation recommendation. However, there's some folks that are suggesting that it might be more, uh, more useful to assess the horse's insulin concentration under conditions under which it's typically managed. So if the horse lives on pasture, then identifying what its basal insulin concentration is at some average time on pasture might be useful um, at assessing its risk. Um, evaluating its insulin when it's eating its usual, its typical diet of grass hay under conditions in which it's usually fed might be useful. So anyways, the, probably the most important thing given that variability in test conditions would be if this is a value that's going to be used to both diagnose the horse 
and to evaluate it over time, the conditions under which the sample is collected should hopefully be standardized. So for example, if you choose to have your horse evaluated at pasture, the next time that it's evaluated as a follow-up sample to assess whether there's been some improvement, the testing conditions should be as similar as possible. And understanding there's a lot of variables to try and manage here. Um, some of the variables involved that might influence an insulin concentration um, can vary with time of day, uh, they can vary with season, they can vary with um, fed state of the horse, obviously, they can vary with a lot of things. And so it's never going, it's not going to be perfect, but trying to be as consistent as possible is important. The vast majority of horses that haven't received uh, concentrate feed in the last um, three to five hours that don't have insulin dysregulation will have an insulin concentration in the single digits, uh, typically. Uh, less than 20 million international units per liter is a pretty typical cutoff for most labs that run these um, with most different testing platforms. But realistically speaking, um, many normal horses will have concentrations far lower than that. So um, if you're interpreting a basal insulin, less than 20 would be considered normal. Um, many labs will consider 20 to 50 international units, million international units per liter to be a gray zone, although I think a lot of people would make the case that that would, there's not very many normal horses that are going to be in that range, and so I'd be concerned there. And then greater than 50, according to the equine endocrinology group, um, their recommendations are housed at Tufts it would be considered to be consistent with a diagnosis of insulin dysregulation. Um, other tests that utilize insulin concentrations um, as part of the test, like the oral sugar test, and again, I hope Dr. Manfredi will comment on her experience with this because she's done a lot of them. Um, oral sugar test essentially puts a little stress to the system. Um, gives the horse some oral carbohydrate and sees what their insulin response to that is. Um, you might see uh, veterinarians talk about a combined glucose and insulin test. Um, you might see um, people talk about an insulin tolerance test. These are all tests that can be used to try and identify various facets of insulin dysregulation. And they all they all have different pros and cons, and um, some of them um, can be used in series or multiple tests to identify different uh, abnormalities in the same horse. I'll just leave with one com one additional comment about a basal insulin and that it's poorly sensitive, meaning um, we have lots of horses that are very, that have very abnormal, um, that are very insulin dysregulated that can have a normal basal insulin. So while if it's high, if you measure a high sample in a horse, that's that's consistent with the diagnosis of ID. If it's normal, it doesn't rule it out. So if if it's a high-risk horse or a horse that you're very suspicious has a problem um, and they have a normal insulin, then we'd follow up with a dynamic test to try and get a little bit more sensitive information about that horse's problem. Dr. Manfredi, did you have anything that you wanted to add? Uh, yeah, I just, I mean, a few things. Um, so following up on that, just to kind of drive the point home, because one of the biggest questions I get is, you know, individuals is like, oh, the insulin was normal on the basal, um, but, you know, my horse is still having issues with founder and laminitis. And so just to give you some numbers, so if you tested 100 horses and you knew 20 horses for sure 100% had um, insulin dysregulation issues, so you have, we did a gold standard test on them during my PhD and we knew that they had it. If you just looked at their basal samples, I would have only found one out of the 20 horses 
um, as having a problem. So I would have missed 19 horses that were at risk for foundering by just pulling that basal static sample um, versus when I was doing the oral sugar tests on these horses, I was able to identify 18 of the 20 as having a problem. So uh, I'm hoping that can help drive home the point to everyone listening that basal samples um, are really not um, a great step um, for determining some of the insulin dysregulation statuses of horses. Um, that's just not sufficient anymore. Um, if you're lucky and you pull it and it's high, exactly, I totally agree with you, Teresa, Dr. Burns, that um, yes, this animal has a problem, but there's so many of them that won't register as being high that really are at risk. Um, and so and one other thing, when you're talking about variables um, and with testing and keeping things consistent, one thing that I didn't actually realize until actually going through some of my PhD work was consistency between labs. So if you're pulling your samples, whether you're running an or a static test or a dynamic test, if you are sending them to Cornell, keep sending them to Cornell. If you're sending them to us at Michigan State, which I would love, keep sending them to us. Um, and that's because there's some variability with the actual tests they use to measure insulin in some instances, and there's some variability between labs. So again, it's one of the factors that can kind of influence your results is keep it going to the same laboratory if possible. Um, so, um, yeah, as far as I can definitely go into more of the um, testing and breed-specific things, if you are, if Michelle, you think that is the next question that you'd like to address. Yeah, we have some questions that are coming in from the live audience, um, not necessarily related to testing, although I'm expecting we'll get some follow-up questions here pretty quickly. Um, but I do have a question, Dr. Manfredi, about donkeys. Sarah is in our live audience, and she wants to know if laminitis in donkeys is any different than laminitis in horses and ponies. So um, donkeys definitely have this as a problem. Um, it, it, it's definitely an issue with them across the board. Uh, the donkeys that I have dealt with, um, it tends to be um, they're actually, at least the ones in my practice, have been hardier than the ponies and the horses in a way that sometimes they have a more severe change of their coffin bone, but they're still getting around a little bit better. And that potentially, I think that that might be because they're typically lighter than um, some of our ponies and horses that have the problem. Uh, we do have to kind of go after them more aggressively, I think, with like farrier care um, and what you're going to be doing with um, trimming the feet and taking care of them. Um, and I guess as far as testing, we actually have um, some recent studies that have gone about looking at some of the basal and dynamic testing results with donkeys, so your veterinarians can refer and look at those to get a better indication about where your donkey is standing, um, because I guess, you know, one of the other parts of my work has shown that breed differences can um, actually influence insulin levels and have an effect, and so your testing, uh, you know, we have these cutoffs that you know, um, Dr. Burns talked about before, but I would say in breeds that are more predisposed, um, such as your Welsh ponies and your donkeys, the insulin levels where you would say, yes, this is truly a problem, um, is more like down to the 30 and 32 mark versus up at the 50 mark. So um, I guess, Dr. Burns, what other thoughts do you have on donkeys for issues with laminitis endocrinopathically related? Sure. I, I, I agree with absolutely everything that you just said. Um, particularly, I was, I was thinking when this question was first asked, I was like, oh gosh, the first thing to, you know, certainly donkeys get laminitic. And we see 
I would say in our practice, um, if we are looking for, for clinical evidence of laminitis in donkeys, we find it in more often than not, even in ones that are um, where the disease is relative, so they're relatively sound. Um, we can see divergent growth rings. If we take RADs, they almost always have some kind of change in there, but they're so stoic that they don't show us very much yeah. in the way of clinical disease. And so I think it, it's, it's quite common. Um, the issue then becomes with trying to find, and I love that you brought up the reference range things, one of the uh, faculty members here at Ohio State, Ramiro Toribio, has actually done some, some work with some groups in Europe uh, trying to develop reference ranges for some of these both um, diagnostic tests and for things like uh, triglyceride concentrations, insulin concentrations, et cetera, in donkeys because it does, it does appear to be different in them. Um, so they're, they seem to be more, uh, have higher peripheral uh, tissue insulin resistance than, than horses do. They are a different species. Um, their, their fasting um, endogenous triglyceride concentrations are higher. And so we don't, um, it's nice that we do have those, those papers that you just mentioned to, to validate some test points in, in donkeys. We probably need some more. Um, and some of these reference ranges that we use for things that we measure routinely in horses probably need to be altered in donkeys because it does appear that they are different. So um, indeed they are different species and, and it's, just, uh, it's pretty common, but some of the, the rules don't necessarily apply in the exact same way as they do in horses. We have another question from our live audience, Dr. Manfredi, that's breed-specific. Sandy wants to know if Andalusians are mo more prone to developing laminitis, and is it often thyroid-related? So, um, yes, there's been a, a lot of elegant studies that have looked at the Andalusian breed and shown that they are more predisposed to laminitis, so they are one of the more at-risk breeds. Um, and so um, the second part of the question was, is it thyroid related, if I remember? Yes. So, um, so yeah, so the, the thyroid is one of those um, interesting things in horses because I think at least initially um, we were thinking a lot of the animals that had metabolic syndrome were hypothyroid. But um, I think the general consensus now, and I'll see if Teresa, Dr. Burns agrees with me, is that it's very rare to actually have a true hypothyroid horse. Um, there are some rare instances of hyperthyroid, but um, we really truly are not seeing a lot of hypothyroid horses. Although um, one of the things that you know was used early on for these horses that have metabolic syndrome is um, thyroid or level levoxathyrine, which is a treatment for hypothyroidism. Um, and people, I think, were seeing some initial effect um, potentially because it increased the metabolic rate of these horses and they had some weight loss, which we know losing weight can help your insulin sensitivity. So um, yes, Andalusians are predisposed um, as a breed to laminitis and endocrinopathic issues with insulin regulation, um, but it's probably not the thyroid um, as the driving cause of it. Dr. Manfredi, are there any other breeds? And you, you mentioned Welsh ponies. Are there any others that are more prone to endocrine-related laminitis? Sure. sure. So Welsh ponies, Arabians, Morgan, Tennessee walking horses, Pasifinos, um, generally ponies in general, not just the Welsh ponies. Um, and then the uh, breeds like the Andalusians and some of the pre-breeds as well um, are more at risk. Um, I will say that in some places you will see quarter horses on that list. And I will say my research, at least here in the United States, did not really, like those were some of the most insulin sensitive horses 
we tested. Um, standard breads, again, are lower at risk, um, uh, and your thoroughbreds and uh, some of your warm bloods, again, tend to be a little bit lower at risk. So if you had to pick a horse that wasn't going to have a problem, typically a standard bred, plus or minus your quarter horses, would be the ones you would be looking at, um, whereas uh, Michigan State has a, a breeding operation for Arabians here, so it keeps me very busy sometimes. Mm -hmm. so. um, our next question is for Dr. Burns, and it's from Mary in Springdale, Washington. And Mary wants to know, why does insulin resistance cause laminitis? Well, I would answer know? to Mary that I would also like to know why insulin resistance causes laminitis. There has been an incredible amount of research effort poured into this very question um, pretty much ever since it was, we first started to observe um, that some of these endocrine issues were associated with laminitis in horses. And, you know, we've come a long way in 10 years, and we've sort of started to distill down some of the important research questions. But at the end of the day, just a, a bit of a spoiler alert for, for you, Mary, um, we don't know exactly how insulin dysregulation causes laminitis. But some points that have been that are under investigation. So we know that, as Dr. Manfredi explained earlier, insulin is really important for um, glucose disposal, and primarily the, the tissues that take up glucose in response to insulin are the primary insulin responsive tissue. So these, the skeletal muscle, the liver, and the adipose tissue. Um, all of these tissues that need to respond to insulin express a receptor on their cells that lets that that lets it see that insulin. So insulin binds its receptor, and then the downstream effects of that occur. The digital lamellae, um, the, that structure that I described earlier that provides that sort of Velcro connection between the hoof capsule and the coffin bone, those cells in there are very analogous to the cells in your skin. It's, it's essentially, as I mentioned earlier, it's a very heavily modified fingernail. You can think of it that way. And those cells in that heavily modified skin appendage are not insulin responsive. So we know that those cells in there, they need a lot of glucose to maintain that connection between the hoof capsule and the coffin bone. They're doing a lot of work. They use a lot of sugar, but they don't need insulin to take it up. And so they're glucose in or they're, they're insulin independent. And so we know that if we take a horse or a pony, and it's interesting that Dr. Manfredi mentioned standard breads earlier, and, and, and that's our experience too, that quarter horses, standard breads, thoroughbreds, while we certainly see the odd case of insulin dysregulation in those breeds, they seem to be at some level sort of genetically protected against some of these diseases. But it's, it's, it's sort of unfortunate that a lot of the, the, the really landmark studies in this field have been done with standard bred horses. They're sort of the workhorse of laminitis research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for, for, for laminitis that's associated with sepsis or for support limb laminitis, that's probably perfectly appropriate and maybe we can extrapolate a lot from them. But it, um, it's, it's sort of a limitation of some of this work that, that a lot of these things are being done in standard breads. And so people are recognizing that and, and trying to modify their approach somewhat. Um, we know that if we take a standard bred horse and we infuse insulin in their blood for three days or so, 48 hours, 72 hours, um, to very high levels. So instead of 20 million international units per liter, if we make it 1,100 for three days, um, we, can, we can make that horse laminitic. Why that is, is a bit unclear. 
it doesn't appear to be that insulin signals directly to those those skin cells, those keratinocytes in the lamellae. Um, there seems to be some sort of an intermediary between those two, and it actually might be glucose, um, along with all of that insulin that has to be infused into a horse for this model. In order to keep their blood sugar at a relatively normal level, we have to infuse a lot of glucose as well. And because the lamellae are not insulin dependent, they continue to take up glucose um, quite readily um, if we infuse it at a high level. And so we don't know exactly why IR causes laminitis, but there's lots and lots of studies that suggest that the higher a horse's insulin is, both either at baseline or in response to some sort of glucose challenge, either an oral sugar test, um, a change in their diet to a high non-structural carbohydrate feed, um, that's a pretty strong, probably the strongest risk factor for endocrinopathic laminitis that we know of in horses. So we're still trying to tease out the details here, and, and there's a lot more work to be done, but it really is a, it's a pretty robust correlation at the moment. Our next question is for Dr. Manfredi. Um, it's from Mary in our live audience. So we've had some mentions of quarter horses and quarter horses not being the ones that are necessarily going to have uh, this form of laminitis. But Mary has a quarter horse who is laminitic. She says uh, the mare isn't overweight and she's turned out on minimal grass. Her laminitis tends to flare up in late February and early March. Could it be seasonally or hormonally related? Sure, and, and that's a great question. And it's funny, I'm actually interested because a lot of these, what we call like winter laminitis cases, like these are where I've seen the quarter horses have problems. And so we can talk about that in a little bit. But um, what we do know about some of these like winter laminitis cases um, is that uh, some recent work out of Kentucky has shown that our insulin levels, our horses' insulin levels, are generally the highest in spring, which many of us can predict. Um, but the next place where they're high is actually in winter. So spring and winter are the times where just even basal levels or levels of insulin in response to like an oral sugar test are highest in spring and winter. So um, what we can have there is if we are working off the hypothesis that the high level of insulin, whether it's insulin or self or insulin related to glucose as being a problem, um, it would make sense that we actually do see spring and winter laminitis occur. So seasonally, there's definitely effects. Um, late summer is a safer time period as an early fall as far as um, what insulin concentrations are there in response to a challenge. Um, and so with quarter horses, um, what I would say and what I'm trying to actually interested in finding kind of a number of quarter horses that have this problem, but um, we know that a lot of the quarter horses actually are very much more well-muscled animals. So if you think about some of your halter types, um, they're definitely have, they're the muscle horses of the world, shall we say, um, and quarter horses actually have this genotype um, which promotes um, this muscle development because there's a lack of inhibition of that muscle development. Um, and it's called a sign insertion. And so what I'm curious about in some of these horses is that I think that the very well-muscled horses actually are protected because the more muscles you have, the more glucose you use, and it's one of the greatest places for, like, insulin dispersal and glucose dispersal. Um, and some of the quarter horses that have the laminitic problem, I'm wondering if they actually um, don't have this particular genotype. Um, and so if they don't have it, it's not protective, and then they're perhaps more at risk. So uh, one of my baby interests would be to try and gather up um, some 
blood or hair from some of these quarter horses that have these repeated bouts of winter laminitis um, and see if actually they are genotypically not as safe um, as other quarter horses. Interesting. Um, we have another question for our live audience. I'm going to give this one to Dr. Burns. Callie wants to know if you can explain how inflammation is involved in laminitis. Oh dear. So, how inflammation is involved in laminitis? Well, this this is this is something that people have been very interested in for a long time because you might recognize there are a lot of anti-inflammatory medications um, on the market for lots of species, including horses, and so. It would, be, it would be really nice if we could identify a reliably treatable inflammatory component to laminitis in horses. And so in this sense, we would probably have to now start to divide laminitis into the disease associated with different etiologies. So there's three primary forms of laminitis in horses. There's sepsis-associated laminitis, which is the type of laminitis that horses with diarrhea or horses with pneumonia or mares who retain their placenta, those are the ones that get sepsis-related laminitis. And there's a really strongly um, described role for um, inflammation in that lamellar tissue, in the lamellar attachment in sepsis-associated laminitis. It's very, very inflammatory. So in experimental models of that condition, you can see um, white blood cells, those, those sort of first-line first soldiers of the immune system, really invading the lamellae within about a day or two of inducing um, experimental laminitis. It's a very inflammatory type of the disease. Um, in support limb laminitis, the type of laminitis that Barbaro um, infamously um, succumb to. Inflammation is probably involved, but it's a little bit less well characterized, and there's not a very, at least there's not a well-established experimental model of that condition. With endocrinopathic laminitis, which is what we're talking about here tonight, the laminitis that's associated with EMS, with PPID, um, with steroid administration for horses, the role of inflammation in the feet, in the lamellae themselves, is much less well-defined, and, and there's, there's sort of conflicting information on this. In some experimental models of endocrine, endocrinopathic laminitis, there's very little evidence of inflammation within the feet. So there's not very many white cells in the lamellae. Um, if we try and measure some, some, some proteins that are produced in inflammation um, in that setting of that disease, there's not very much there. And so with respect to inflammation, it appears there are differences between the different types of laminitis. Um, Although at the end of the day, it actually might not uh, might not matter too much from a preventive standpoint because even in the very inflammatory form of sepsis-associated laminitis, giving anti-inflammatory drugs like bute or banamine or um, steroidal anti-inflammatories like corticosteroids doesn't seem to be effective at preventing the problem. Those drugs, however, are pretty important because they're 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 very they're very useful pain medications for horses with laminitis of any form, and we know that this is a, a can be an excruciatingly painful condition for horses. And so those drugs have an important role there, but perhaps not in actually modifying the course of the laminitis itself, if that makes sense. Our next question is for Dr. Manfredi. It's from our live audience. Allie says that she's heard that some horses with equine metabolic syndrome aren't overweight. Are these average weight or maybe even thin horses still at risk for laminitis? 
Absolutely, yes. So that's a, a great thing to bring up. When I was talking about our classic definition of EMS before, when we talked about horses that are overweight or have regional adiposity, um, so um, two things can happen here. So one, you could have a horse that is totally um, a regular body condition score and doesn't have regional areas of fat like the crest and neck and tail head. They can look completely what you would say a normal horse, but yet these are still animals that when we do dynamic testing on them, we can pick out that they're at risk based on their um, insulin responses to challenge. So um, there are also horses, uh, one of my favorite research horses here on the Arabian farm is Sandman, who um, has a body condition score about four all the time. So you can see his ribs a little bit more easily, but he has a very, very crusty neck and tail. So if you were going to body condition score him, it'd be a little bit hard because he's so thin. You can, you know, he's not so thin. You can see his ribs, but yet he has kind of these regional fat pockets. So um, we absolutely do have horses that are what you would consider thin that have insulin dysregulation. Um, and they're actually some of the ones where um, I am most concerned because uh, where clinically I see it is that no one is thinking or worrying about laminitis with them and all of a sudden their feet are sore and it's a problem. So a lot of us, if we have our you know very well-conditioned Welsh ponies are really in tune with this is maybe an animal that could have a problem on the spring grass, but if you have um, you know a really um, fit Morgan, you wouldn't maybe necessarily think twice. And so here's where um, with animals that you know if they already have a breed predisposition to it, um, I do like to test these animals to kind of see um, where they are because it could be that you're doing everything right management-wise. So you're keeping the weight off of them. They're getting regular exercise. Um, they're on a you know low non-structural carbohydrate diet, and um, if you test them, um, they may look okay, but if you take away one of those good management features, all of a sudden you might start developing problems. So absolutely, just because your horse is thin does not mean they're safe from having problems. Um, you really need to test and see. So Dr. Manfredi, does that mean that the testing should be part of your regular preventative wellness care for your horse? So if you have a horse from one of the breeds that we talked about that's more at risk, um, and you know, I would actually include that um, as a feature of something I would like to do on a yearly or bi-yearly basis. Um, so if you're talking about Arabians, Morgans, Passos, um, any of those breeds, that is something I do incorporate or talk about at my yearly wellness exams um, about something that we consider testing to kind of know what that horse's status is and then to be able to watch over time um, to make sure we're not going to start developing a problem. Dr. Burns, we have a question from Rachel in our live audience. She says that she has a horse that has rings around his hoof wall. She wants to know if that means if he's definitely had laminitis in the past. That's another very, very good question. So do, what's the significance of growth rings in the feet? And in, in this setting, I think it's important to remember that horses can develop rings, in visible rings in their hoof capsules for a lot of different reasons. Um, sometimes major medical illness can cause a, you know, a detectable change in, in, in a growth ring. Sometimes a change in feed can cause it. Um, but the key with, with looking for external evidence of previous bouts of laminitis is looking for something that we call divergent growth rings. And what that means is that if you're looking at the horse's foot from the side, if you're looking at growth rings going from the heels, progressing over to the dorsum of the foot to the toe, the rings will be 
spaced wider apart at the heels and they're, they narrow towards the dorsum or the top of the foot. And that is very characteristic of laminitis. And so other things that you might notice uh, might be a little bit of a divot at the top of the foot. Um, you also might notice that there might be a little bit of a dorsal concavity to the hoof capsule. Um, if you pick the foot up, you might notice that the sole is flat or that the sole is convex or rounded or bulging. Um, you might notice that the white line is widened. These are all um, little bits of evidence that you can get just from looking at the outside of the foot um, that there might be some, some historical evidence of laminitis. And so if we see that, even if it's a horse that we've never seen before, and even if they're walking perfectly soundly, um, they have a, a gait that looks normal, it might not be a bad idea to go ahead and get some, some foot x-rays on a case like that because um, I wouldn't say you'd be surprised if you saw that external evidence, but you might be, the degree of change in the foot might surprise you, particularly when we're talking about these endocrinopathic cases where the disease can actually be a very chronic, smoldering, somewhat occult kind of a problem. Um, you know, in comparing it with sepsis-associated laminitis, which tends to be fulminant, acute, um, very severe in nature, and sometimes catastrophic in the way it, it causes disruption of the foot, endocrinopathic disease, it can be severe and acute in some instances, but probably what's more typical is that it is insidious and chronic and smoldering and you may get a horse that that you know we get a lot of horses that that we see that and I think this is probably the case for lots of people um that come in with a history of having um uh you know some stiffness or arthritis that tends to be seasonal or only when they're turned out on pasture and honestly that happened a lot more before awareness was improved about laminitis we had a lot of seasonal arthritis that happened about 10 years ago and now I think people are a little <laughs> bit more um, savvy about recognizing that as as laminitis in these cases, because sometimes if that's noted and a single dose of, of bute or banamine or your, you know, whatever NSAID is being that it was given, those horses often look a lot better the next day. And that's very typical um, for a lot of cases of endocrinopathic laminitis. So um, it, there's a there's a bit of a difference there between the two, but the, looking at the the morphology of the feet and listening to sometimes um, what your blacksmith is saying about the changes that they're noticing in the feet over trimming cycles can be very useful for detecting some of these occult pathologies before the horse actually even develops any lameness. Believe it or not. So, Dr. Burns, if you were doing a pre-purchase on a horse, um, would there mm -hmm. be any evidence that the horse had had laminitis in the past? Sure. So if, if we're doing a pre-purchase exam, those very same changes, we would look for them and note them. Um, and perhaps, you know, other components of the of the pre-purchase exam, like um, jogging and flexions, et cetera, might dictate that you would take um, radiographs of certain pieces of the horse's anatomy. Well, if we saw changes like that, um, divergent growth rings, dorsal concavity of the hoof capsule, drop sole, um, we'd recommend getting foot rads. And then we actually might recommend um, as I, I'm, I can't remember if Dr. Manfredi mentioned this or not, I thought she did, but do some, some lab work, um, some endocrine testing based on what those feet look like. That certainly might be, um, be added to a pre-purchase exam based on what the horse looked like at the time of its exam. Dr. Manfredi, we received uh, a lot of questions about some supplements for managing insulin resistance and equine metabolic syndrome. Uh, Renee in Mountain Iron, Minnesota, wants to know what to look for in an effective supplement for horses with insulin re resistance. This is an area that you've studied. What advice do you have? Sure. 
So um, the first thing I would tell Renee or tell anyone is that supplements are supposed to be just that they are supplements to other management changes. So you can't turn your horse that's at risk for this out on spring pasture. You can't give them a ton of grain. You need to be doing the dietary and preferentially exercise management too. And these supplements that we're going to talk about are to be on top of that to help kind of give that horse a little extra protective edge or help hopefully regulate the insulin a little bit better beyond what those dietary and exercise management changes are doing. Um, so kind of the um, two older supplements or drugs that people would use to kind of help with EMS um, or metformin and then uh, the thyro-L or the levoxathyrine. And so um, with those, um, basically, obviously, we saw some mixed results. So a lot of the times with the metformin, um, we saw studies that showed it had really poor absorption. Um, but some studies showed that we did blunt the glucose response a little bit, which in turn could decrease the insulin response the horses had. Um, so metformin um, potentially is advocated to kind of give ideally immediately before going out to graze. Um, there's a recent paper that's actually looking at giving metformin along with um, another drug, which uh, I will, citagliptin, I, I will say I can't probably pronounce that correctly, um, but that's really, really new, um, saying that those two together perhaps might be more effective than the metformin alone, and it might help with the, avail the absorption of metformin. Um, so I guess in response to that, most of us will say that's something we can try, but it's not been overly impressive in all animals. So when looking at the thyro-L, um, again, that was initiated because um, people thought the horses were initially hypothyroid, and it probably increases the metabolic function um, of the animal and thus loses weight that way. Um, so again, that has kind of mixed results, and it's something that we don't want the horses to be on long term. There's a concern about uh, cardiac issues, although I will say clinically I haven't really seen that. Um, perhaps there's been a few horses where I've been wondering about um, their atrial fibrillation, but uh, I don't think there's been enough numbers to prove that. Um, so kind of other options for supplementation, uh, obviously, um, again, just kind of acknowledging some of the work that I have done with resveratrol um, or insulin-wise that has not only resveratrol, but also um, chrysartan and some amino acids like lysine and lipstein. Um, um, others have looked at resveratrol by itself um, for influencing both joint and metabolic health. Uh, and so in the study that I did was looking at 15 horses that we knew from previous testing or multiple previous testings to have actually insulin dysregulation. Um, we started to feed them uh, the insulin-wise over the course of six weeks um, and were able to see in 10 of the 15 improvements in their uh, insulin dynamics as well as their Adiponectin. So um, with any of these, again, it's important to recognize there were five horses that three Arabians and two Morgans that were just very insulin dysregulated to begin with, and we weren't able to lower their basal or tested insulin values. But for a large, you know, 10 of the 15, we were able to help them out quite a bit in lowering their insulin responses to the testing and also um, have increased weight loss. Uh, and so with resveratrol from whatever source um, you're talking about, uh, potentially we think it actually um, activates the mitochondria um, 
through a, a certain one pathway. So the mitochondria are kind of like the energy powerhouses of the cell. And so if you have um, a more active metabolism, um, that's theoretically helpful um, as far as your processing for insulin and glucose. Um, and additionally, with Insulin-wise, we've added in some of the amino acids, the lysine and the leucine, which have been shown to have like an additive effect when given with bisphenol, as far as helping with weight loss um, in some animals. Um, and so, resveratrol on the whole has also been shown to kind of alter the microbiome. Um, and I'm working on that currently to see if we can see some of these microbiome changes in the animals, um, looking at some of their feces before and after we supplemented. Um, and why that's important is because we think that the you know the the gut in these EMS horses is really important um, because it's decreasing cretins, which can influence the levels of insulin that you develop. Um, and ultimately, a lot of your microbiome can also weigh into this as well. So we know in EMS horses from some work done down in Florida and by Pat Harris that their microbiome is very different um, and more restricted than normal horses. And so if we could potentially influence the microbiome to be a healthier, more um, diverse population, we could be trying to get at the heart of uh, the issues that we're seeing. So uh, again, metformin, the thyro-L, um, resveratrol, um, plus or minus amino acids um, are some of the more popular supplementations or drugs that people have tried. I will say that there is um, a new like glucose co-transport inhibitor um, called Um And again, please forgive me for probably uh, not pronouncing that completely correctly, uh, that's been given orally um, in some horses to prevent some of this glucose reabsorption. Um, and it potentially might be an up and coming other supplement to look at for um, influencing or helping horses that have um, these dramatic insulin responses despite other management changes. So uh, I guess I don't know what other questions you might prompt from that, and I'm happy to take them. Okay. Dr. Burns, our next question is for you. It's from Caroline in Chico, California, and she wants to know what kind of diet is appropriate for a horse that's at risk for uh, this type of laminitis? Sure. So this uh, nutrition is one of the the first lines of therapy for a horse that has insulin dysregulation and EMS and endocrinopathic laminitis. And the overarching goals of, of, of treating a horse with these conditions nutritionally, if they are overconditioned or overweight, um, nutrition is very important for allowing them to achieve a, a more normal body condition. That often, particularly in non-genetically predisposed breeds, seems to really improve their insulin and glucose dynamics um, tremendously. But as Dr. Manfredi uh, you know, alluded to earlier, in these in genetically predisposed individuals of these predisposed breeds, um, sometimes they can be quite lean. And so the other, the other goal of treating uh, horses with endocrinopathic laminitis uh, nutritionally is to decrease their insulin response to the diet that they're fed. And so a way that this can be done is to both minimize the um, to minimize the content of non-structural carbohydrate, those sugars and starches and fructans in the diet. Um, so things that can be done to try and accomplish that goal would be to minimize the amount of concentrate feed in the horse's diet, 
um, and that includes both grains, cereal grains, which which seems like the that's the low-hanging fruit. I think people people understand the the risk associated with that, but certainly some some um, extruded and pelleted and forage-based concentrate feeds, um, particularly ones that are molassed, can sometimes have a, a bit of a sneaky amount of non-structural carbohydrate in them. Um, and as far as a number that you'd be looking for to try and target with a diet, this, this hasn't been looked at um, and analyzed with an awful lot of rigor, but it's been used as a pretty common rule of thumb for a long time by a lot of people. And based on, based on a, a giant mountain of anecdote, it seems that 10% um, of non-structural carbohydrate on a dry matter basis in the diet appears to be a reasonable target. Um, and so that's including the forage component of the diet and any any supplements or concentrate feed that the horse might get should ideally be less than 10% um, non-structural carbohydrate. So most horses should be fed somewhere between one and a half and two and a half percent of their body weight in forage per day. Um, Ideally, that forage should be less than 10% NSC, and if it's if it's higher than that, and this is a pretty common question that we get, um, people will usually ask about soaking, because um, often what happens is people people either uh, prepare or buy a lot of hay and and hopefully have it tested, and then it comes back that it's it has 18 or 22% NSC, and they say, oh gosh, I just bought a lot. <laughs> What do I have to do with this? And so um, it turns out that soaking can be an effective way to, to get some of the water-soluble carbohydrate out of a high NSC hay. It can decrease it by about 25%. And that's there's a couple of different studies that have shown that that's a pretty, um, that's a pretty reliable number. So if you've got a hay that's about 18%, it can actually get it pretty close to a level that's safer for a horse with EMS. If you have a hay that's 25% or 26%, and those certainly exist, it probably isn't going to get it down to where it needs to be for a horse with uh, insulin dysregulation. So that's just something to keep in mind with respect to soaking. But um, at the end of the day, the goals for, for nutritionally managing a horse with, with insulin dysregulation would be to make sure that the content of the feed – um, is low NSC and that they have a little bit of feed going in all the time. So even if a feed has a little bit higher NSC content, so let's just say it's 15, 18%, if it's a small amount of it fed multiple times per day, that's another strategy that can be used to minimize the amount of uh, increase in blood sugar after eating it and therefore minimize the amount of, of insulin that um, that's secreted in response to that meal. So these are all strategies that can be used that are appropriate for insulin dysregulation in the setting of EMS and in the setting of PPID that we were talking about earlier. So the same diets actually would, would usually be very appropriate for both both situations. And we only have about a minute left in our live broadcast and our official time, um, but I want to follow up really quickly with that um, what about exercise as part of the management strategy along with diet? Is this for me or Dr. Burns or any Doc, of us? For, for Dr. Burns. Oh, very right. good. So exercise, and this this can be about a minute's worth of, of, of point here. Um, exercise is critically important and for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's important over the long term for maintaining ideal body condition, but in other species, and there's a little bit of work in horses to suggest that even in the absence of a the ounce, you know, even in the absence of the loss of a single ounce of fat, a bout of aerobic exercise that's vigorous. So for a horse, this would be um, 30 minutes of trot and canter. Um, three to five times a week, after a single bout of that, you can actually detect um, about four hours 
um, of sustained increase in peripheral insulin sensitivity. So even in the absence of weight loss, which is good for horses that are over-conditioned, they should have that too, but even if they don't lose any weight, in, exercise in and of itself um, can improve insulin sensitivity and minimize insulin dysregulation. And it turns out that some of the same pathways that are activated by resveratrol and metformin um, and some other targets like, uh, like aspirin and some other things uh, are the same pathways that are activated um, much less expensively or much, much less, um, with much less financial involvement in wailing and gnashing of teeth of medicating horses by exercise. And so as long as horses are sound enough to do the work, which is a big, a big question for when we're talking about laminitis patients, as long as they're sound enough to do the work, exercise is a really important and often undersung part of the management of horses with uh, endocrine disease, particularly if they happen to be overweight. So Can I add are... one thing just really quickly? Yes. Okay. So if you have a horse, though, that is um, – not comfortable enough to do that vigorous level of exercise. There's been some initial work looking at resistance bands. So they could work at like a lower pace, but have to work a little bit harder. So if you have an animal that can walk comfortably, but it's not trotting or cantering, there may be a place for resistance band training and helping again activate um, and make them more insulin sensitive. So um, stay tuned for that too. Okay. Um, we are um, past time, but Dr. Manfredi, just really quickly, I'd like to touch on what should our owners do who are listening? Obviously, they're here because they're concerned about this. What should they do in an acute case of laminitis with their horses? What should their reaction be? Sure. So for an acute case of like an endocrinopathic form of laminitis, um, some of the studies that we have done experimentally and then looking at clinical cases um, actually has shown that icing horses continuously and, and not on and off again, but keeping them in continuous ice um, has helped prevent the development or severity of some of the laminitic change. Um, that in conjunction with the anti-inflammatories that Dr. Burns talked about before, either the flunixin or um, phenylbutazone. So um, for us, at least here, and Dr. Burns, you can comment there, um, getting these animals um, with icing their feet or their distal limbs um, has been an important step towards um, preventing further damage. And Dr. Burns, did you have anything to add? Absolutely. I think um, I, I, I certainly agree with that. And I'll, I just um, to comment on the on the ice, we also um, do a lot of, of continuous distal limb um, icing cryotherapy here, both for clinical cases and certainly for experimental work. And there's some recent evidence that, you know, we've known for a while that 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 icing is effective for sepsis-associated laminitis, but there's some some new evidence coming out. And this has been a question for a while that uh, distal limb cryotherapy is also effective in um, both preventing, if it started early, and mitigating the severity if it started during uh, a bout of endocrinopathic laminitis. And so it appears that that icing is is very effective in the setting of different forms of laminitis. And so I completely agree. We use a lot of ice around here, um, and you know horses seem to tolerate it very well. Um, some of our physician colleagues are sort of horrified when they see what kinds of temperatures we achieve in the distal limbs because when they talk about cooling for therapy, they're talking about four or five degrees away from body temperature, and we're talking about 30 <laughs> degrees away from body temperature. But horses tolerate it yeah. very well, and yeah. it seems to be really effective in the setting of this disease, which can be difficult to treat. So, yeah, we do a lot of that too. 
Well, the hour went by really fast, um, so unfortunately that's all the time we have tonight for this topic. I want to thank Dr. Burns and Dr. Manfredi for joining us and for, for answering our questions tonight. It was, it was a great pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was, it was a great pleasure. Yes, thank you so, so much. And also, I'd like to extend a thank you to our audience for submitting questions and for joining us tonight. And also a thank you to our sponsor, InsulinWise, made by KPP, for bringing this event to everyone for free. Uh, please join us next month when we'll be talking about fly and insect control on your horse farms. Until then, from all of us at the horse, have a great night.